Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Luis Gonzalez. I am the director for the AI Asia Pacific Institute in Singapore. And today I'm running the podcast and want to introduce you to the topic algorithmic decisions in the power industry. Uh, given the way that we've been looking at ethical application of AI and how it affects humanity today, we're exploring a topic that is very close to my heart, having been in the power industry for the last 25 years. Uh, today, we have a promising scientist and innovator in the areas of deep learning, optimization, energy policy, and a dedicated researcher, as well as a PhD candidate from Carnegie Mellon University. She has been working on topics of machine learning and how they could help us improve power sustainability since 2014, and has built already a great corpus of research exploring the topics of how machine learning can tackle climate change. She has won multiple research awards, prizes, and fellowships, having become a very influential voice in the field of ML and sustainability. In 2019, she was part of noted paper for tackling climate change with ML, with a great list of researchers, amongst them Joshua Benjamin where she basically started the conversation uh, along the lines of power and how good ML could be to help us transition from the situation we have today and how it impacts the climate. This is where I met her. We collaborated very quickly with Element AI and today she runs the Climate Change AI organization composed of volunteers, academics and industry, which is an NGO that believes machine learning can play a great role in the facilitation of our climate goals. She is one of my 30 under 30 to watch. I want to welcome to the podcast, Priya Dunti. Thank you for your time and joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, Priya. So um, at the Institute, we advocate of how to use the power of great learning algorithms uh, for the good of how we believe ethically it should impact humanity. For me personally, power is very close to my heart having worked in the industry. So I couldn't think of a better example of applying the power of learning algorithms for good. Uh, as much as I like social media and TikTok, for me, <laughs> the great research that is, being, that is being done should really start changing the way that we see the world in power. I, I like to get a sense first to start, what got you into this line of research? Why, because you decided earlier in your career that you wanted to dedicate ML and, and sustainability as a topic. So, so what, what got you here? What was, what was the driver for you? Yeah, so I got interested in working on climate change um, during my high school days. Um, my high school biology teacher put aside some time for a curriculum on sustainability. And we learned about climate change being, of course, one of the most pressing issues of our time. And importantly for me, um, an issue that has, you know, impacts for the entirety of humanity and especially those in society who are disproportionately um, uh, marginalized already. So um this is something that that really struck a chord with me that addressing climate change is really important for societal well-being. It's important for equity. Um, and then later on in, in college, I got interested in computer science. So I was looking for ways to bring these two things together. Um, in 2014, 
I uh, stumbled on a paper called Putting the Smarts into the Smart Grid, written by a group of researchers at the University of Southampton. And they talked about how AI and machine learning would be a really critical ingredient in integrating renewable energy into um, smart grids in order to help us meet decarbonization goals. Um, and I got really you know, hooked by that topic. I actually spent a year before starting my PhD um, doing something called a Watson Fellowship where I traveled to, to different countries for a year and just interviewed people in different countries about next generation electric power systems, both sort of the technologies and the social and political factors behind them. So this is something I've been very passionate about for a while. Um, and then more broadly, of course, uh, despite the fact that my, my own research has focused in on AI and power systems, um, the goal of addressing climate change has always stayed near and dear, which is why the Climate Change AI Initiative addresses the intersection of AI and climate change more broadly. That's that's fascinating. I mean, we, we have similar paths, although to be fair, you've done a much better job than I have. It took me 20 years to realize that we weren't doing the right way. Um, one question for you is, it's talked about a lot, and I, and I hear this with customers, that it is an understanding that machine learning or you know AI, as it's referred to, can truly help us uh, transition into perhaps a very paradigm for the way that we generate and distribute power. But it's very difficult for, for our customers and our members and our listeners to understand how come, right? What, what is it that it can actually do? Maybe from your voice, um, what, what do you see being the, the, the biggest areas of, of value or benefit that the, the kind of research that you're doing can bring to the industry? Yeah, that's a great question, which first of all, stepping back, right? What, what is machine learning exactly here? Sure, sure. And mm -hmm. machine learning is a, a paradigm for um, gaining insights from large amounts of data. And this can come in many different forms. So for example, if you have a lot of satellite imagery that it's impossible for any human to look at the entire globe and say, okay, um, I'm looking for solar panels. That's a solar panel. That's a solar panel. That's, that's not something that you can do at scale if you're a human. Um, but a machine learning algorithm can sort of at scale, look at this large amount of data and gain insights on, for example, where are the locations of solar panels? So. Um, machine learning can be used in these cases where there's a lot of data, but more um, that data hasn't been translated into insight that is useful for decision making or planning, for example, on the electric power system and provide some capabilities there. Um, another situation in which we might have a lot of data that needs to be analyzed at scale is, is forecasting, for example. So if you have you know, a lot of his, uh, historical data on electricity demand or, or weather, et cetera, you may want to understand what do I think my solar power production will look like in the next few minutes or tomorrow? Um, and machine learning can again be used to analyze this historical data at scale to understand, well, what are the correlations between historical weather and solar power production? And how can I apply those in the, to, to predict something about the future? So, and, and then I guess I'll, a final paradigm I'll give is sort of Another place in which you might have a lot of data is actually in the operation of an electricity grid. So for example, when you're optimizing the grid, you have a lot of sensors potentially on the grid that are giving you data about the, the operational characteristics or the state of various components on your system. And AI techniques can kind of take that information, analyze it dynamically and, and use that to provide some insights about the state of the system or what actions can be taken. Um, now, machine learning techniques can never operate in a vacuum. So for example, going back to that operations example, 
You also want to make sure that the way you're operating the grid respects various physical constraints that you have on the grid that are um, represented by traditional optimization problems. So this is actually where my work focuses. How do you actually incorporate machine learning methods, which are really good at, again, learning from large amounts of data, dynamically adapting to this data, with traditional optimization and control algorithms that do a really good job respecting the physics and actual constraints of your underlying power system. Interesting. Now, now to, to look at the flip side of that coin, we had an event uh, about a, a couple of years ago in Adelaide, in South Australia, where because of a very abrupt weather, uh, abnormal weather, and abnormal weather is something that we live in every day, right? Abnormal is a new normal for weather. Um, abnormal weather happened in South Australia, and and it basically knocked down the grid, leaving Adelaide and uh, a lot of the the closed areas for almost three days without power. Because the, the fact is, South Australia Power Networks was never modeling this kind of abnormal event, and they already had times in the grid where they were zero power transmitted because of how much renewables is already in people's houses, right? So. Is, is there something that worries you about bringing machine learning to do a certain degree for automation or, or constraint management when this abnormality is happening across the world? Or what worries you about when, when we think of machine learning into the systems? Yeah, and so I think that what always needs to play be at the forefront is, right, what physical and regulatory constraints is your system contending with at any given time? And how do you design a suite of methods that actually satisfy those things? So you mentioned, for example, um, right, abnormal is the new normal as we experience, as climate change exacerbates, we will get more and more extreme temperature that will cause potentially more and more correlated failures of equipment on the power system. Lots of things like that to account for. And machine learning techniques, usually speaking, when they analyze a set of data, they expect that the situation in which they'll be applied is similar to the situation that they, that they analyze. So if you have things like changing temperatures over time, an issue we call distribution shift, then your machine learning algorithm alone can't necessarily handle that. So this is why I think it's really important to understand, you know, what are the strengths and limitations of machine learning? What are the strengths and limitations of some of our existing methods? And how do we combine them in a way that you sort of get the best of both worlds, that you get sort of physics-based models, for example, that can generalize when you have something different happen on the grid, but are really slow, and machine learning algorithms that maybe themselves cannot generalize, but are really fast, how do you sort of combine those two things? Um, right. And another big one, another big um, conversation that's come up on the machine learning side is, is interpretability. So if you're using machine learning for something like a um, solar power forecaster or demand forecast, can that machine learning algorithm tell you why it made that forecast? Can it also quantify the uncertainty of that forecast? So the machine learning algorithm, can it tell you how confident it is in that forecast? And I think all of these kinds of things are going to be really important to make sure that machine learning is properly integrated into systems. Actually, that's a great point. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because in this region, we've been, um, we obviously have a lot of uh, leadership from the financial sector, right? especially Singapore, for example. And uh, we, we've been applying in the last two or three years, the concept of feet, right? Fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency. And it's it was initially incubated for the purpose of the financial sector, but 
we, we've we've always argued that those principles should apply across industries. That is not just an industry and, and uh, one industry principle. And to be fair, it's not the framework that matters; is how you apply it. But I think you you spoken right now the transparency needed for some of these models in the power sector. And and to be fair, when you think of fairness, how we can disadvantage people in this part of the world, uh, especially poor countries that have really high kilowatt hour prices in the market, right? A, a great example of that is the Philippines. They pay the second most expensive kilowatt hour price all over Asia, right? At par with Korea. And to be fair, if you live in a small island in the Philippines, that's just not fair, right? How would you think of the impact to society of, of now that you've spoken of interpretability? Um, what else do you think we should be doing? If, if you think of those Japanese operators, the very senior experienced ones like TEPCO, KEPCO, which now you know is called JERA and the power generation side, what kinds of things they should be considering if, if they were listening to this podcast? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and of course, there's, of course, a very broad set of things to, to consider. Sure, in these I give you an easy one for you. Not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I think when it comes to the application of machine learning, they should also they should be considering um, two big uh, two big things. So one, what problem is machine learning solving? And then two, when it is solving that problem, how it is being used? How is it being used? And so to go into that, machine learning is um, an accelerator of the systems in which it's applied. It's a tool that accelerates other uh, other approaches, and that means that if you, for example, use machine learning for a, a task that is not necessarily, for example, aligned with climate or with um, energy, uh, alleviating energy poverty, et cetera, then machine learning is not going to fix these underlying market issues and policy issues, et cetera, in your system. Right. In fact, it may accelerate them and make them worse. So thinking about a combination of, you know, what problem am I using machine learning to solve? What context am I applying it in? But also what other things need to be adapted or adjusted in order to make machine learning actually achieve that goal is really important. So for example, if you're thinking about using machine learning to optimize an electricity market, but you already know, for example, that your electricity market is not, the, the way it's operated today is not um, aligned with reducing um carbon dioxide emissions on that electricity system, your machine learning algorithm will just accelerate all of the market Absolutely. failures associated Absolutely. with that system. So that's really important. But then also when you, after, when you apply machine learning, you wanna think about, well, am I, do I need to use a very, very complex method? It can imp that can improve performance, but also it can maybe decrease interpretability, it can make it harder for people to access, it may be more expensive to run. So thinking about, you know, how is it used there? Who is it accessible to? Who does it advantage or disadvantage? Talking about issues of fairness. Um, if a machine learning algorithm is, for example, trained on or analyzing data that only represents one, that the interests of one segment of your customers and then is applied to all of your customers, oh. then it may disadvantage those customers who are not represented in, in the data. So I think that thinking about these issues of not just, you know, Machine learning is a tool that is applied with a broader problem, but you can't sort of escape the, the questions around the design of that broader problem. Um, in some sense, you have to think about these two things together. And, and that's actually very, very telling uh, because I was having this conversation with a friend of mine where we were talking a lot about policy. And in the Institute, we, we, we talk about policy. Actually, the, the co-founder is a, it's a lawyer. But the reality is that, and you do policy research as well, right? It, it is, it, to me, it's, 
if you're going to develop and, and, and implement these models, you have to think of governance. You have to think of AI governance as a whole. Like you have to think of the policies around it, the methods, the, the ways to measure, the, the, the accountability aspect of humans, which a machine learning model is not going to be able to do. Right. They don't live in this world. It was still responsible for it. Right. So in that sense, tell us a little bit about the kind of research that that excites you the most at this moment. Yeah. So I think, um, of course, my own research or the direction I've chosen to pursue excites me. And so that direction is, as I as I hinted at earlier, this question of how do you actually incorporate um physics and hard constraints associated with the power systems that we need to operate into machine learning models so that we can, of course, create machine learning models that have various kinds of guarantees that are really important to operating a power system reliably. Because of course, for many power system operators around the world, reliability fundamentally is number one, and you want to make sure that you're not doing anything to compromise that. So there's definitely been a lot of work in constructing sort of safe and um, guaranteed uh, machine learning methods with guarantees here. But I think another big line of work that excites me is um, lines of work that that really think about how can we use machine learning to um, increase the the equitability of energy access. So there's been work in in various places that has tried to do things like analyze a combination of satellite imagery and on the ground metered data to understand, okay, what is the correlation between what I see in the satellite imagery and how much electricity is being used? And then in places where maybe there is not already electricity um, infrastructure where there isn't already energy access, how can I use that information to maybe try to understand what the energy demand in those regions may look like and help me plan how I expand my my grid to those regions? Um, There's also sort of a a very um, early stage area of of machine learning called um, transfer learning that basically says, if I create a machine learning algorithm Um, in one setting. So imagine I I create a machine learning algorithm that is tuned to data from the US um, where there's maybe a lot of data, but I want to use it in a location where maybe there hasn't been as much data collected. How can I adapt my original model using just a a few examples from from my new setting? For example, uh, applying a model in, in Singapore, for example. How can I adapt my model trained in the US on US data to Singapore um, by um, engaging a few examples from the Singapore context. So I think this work is, is relatively early, but I think is going to be really important to think about how can we make sure understanding that, right, it's not the case that the same amount of data, infrastructure, et cetera, exists everywhere. How can we create models that still reflect many different global circumstances and still work for, for a really broad swath of the population? And I think I would love to talk a little bit about that particular aspect because, you know, transfer learning or you know, active learning is, is being researched in different areas. I've seen examples in manufacturing that work brilliantly, but uh, maybe let me pose a, 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 a situation we have, in, especially in Southeast Asia, that I can, I can name at least five or six CEOs that would want to know the answer to this. You have the need, we call it the, the, the power economy paradox of Southeast Asia. Okay. For one side, we have to take care of the environment. So we know Southeast Asia is a very, very heavily reliant on coal. India, particularly very highly reliant on coal. 
and and we know we need to take care of the environment because we don't have much of it you know uh, in good shape at the stage but in the other side we have to build an economy you have uh, companies uh, struggling to grow because of the lack of infrastructure which is really the case of the Philippines Thailand Malaysia to the degree Indonesia for sure um, yet how would they how could they use machine learning? to figure a way to, trans, to transcend into a much more evolved hybrid generation system that it's better for the environment while not slowing down or, or disadvantaging people for not having economic access. Because there's, there's a lot of laziness sometimes in the thinking, you know, well, let's just put a one gigawatt coal plant and serve all this grid, right? And to be fair, it's killing like a, a fly with a shotgun, but at, at the end, it's not, it's not a sustainable decision to make. And there's billions of dollars being spent across Southeast Asia for that. So what, what do you tell to those CEOs? The ones that say, yeah, this all is great, Priya, but this is a, an American problem. We won't be able to do it in Malaysia. We won't be able to do it in Indonesia because we're still having to secure power access in order to build our economy, right? So what would you say to that? Yeah, and it's and you know it's a really tough question, and there's actually a very nice um, talk by um, Rose Mutiso of the Energy for Growth mm. Hub um, on TED, um, who who talks about this in the African context. I think it's something like called something like the Energy Africa needs to grow or something like this, um, and she basically makes the argument that that look, it's really important actually from the perspective from from many perspectives that that developing countries including those in Africa have the ability to grow their economies but that also this actually has benefits for climate change mitigation and adaptation because a um a country that does not have the the infrastructure and the economic infrastructure and economic well-being to um to be able to, for example, um, create various kinds of adaptation strategies or, or actually, you know, think long-term about the way that the economy can be changed to become cleaner. If that capacity doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. And sort of pretending that it already exists doesn't make the problem better. Doesn't make it good or better, yeah. Yeah, so I think in some ways, of course, these, these challenges are a lot bigger than, than just can ML help with this? Um, but I think the, um, the, the sort of way that one can think about is there a way that machine learning can help here? Is that um, historically we, for example, have not had the technologies to manage power grids with um, you know, large amounts of renewables cheaply and, and reliably. We're starting to have those tools now. And of course, in many places, things like solar are actually you know, beating out. I mean, certainly coal is being beat out in terms of price, but also um, even the yeah, natural gas, et cetera, is being beat out. So the question is not, of course, can you create a grid that is 100% solar or 100% coal? The truth is honestly like very much somewhere in between in, yeah, in, in Southeast yeah. Asia. And so the question is, if I have a power grid that I can now manage more dynamically because I have access to machine learning tools that others did not have access to when sort of building up these grids, how can, does that allow me to integrate more renewables? There's also been some work on um, machine learning um, for planning models to try to make these planning models cheaper. So now can I run more scenario analysis and planning on my grid to understand where I can build out certain, um, certain resources and, and still sort of get the same, um, yeah, some, some of the same sort of benefits that you would have had by sort of just plopping down a random plant somewhere else. So I think basically... Machine learning is not going to solve all the problems here. I think it can provide additional tools to dynamically manage a power system that 
allows integration of renewables in a way that did, was not po- as easily possible before. Absolutely. And it can also provide a lot of information and intelligence that allows for um, dynamic planning of the, of, the, of the grid. At the same time, right, there has to be a decision made that this is something we want to think about proactively and we want to care about. Um, in some sense, it is all, even with all these tools around, it is always easier to just say, ah, oh, let me just do what I used to do before and, you know, plop down a plant like I used to do before. Sort of the use of machine learning tools and broader tools has to be coupled with a really strong commitment that this is, of course, something we, we want to solve and sort of putting that first, these tools can help. Yeah. That, and that, you know, it reminds me of a question I hear a lot, which is, can machine learning battery storage and, 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 power brokerage or power sharing, like mesh generation, make renewables baseload? Can we actually get to a point where we're no longer seeing as a volatile peak load only, right? And and I, okay. I think I have an opinion about it, but I'd love to hear yours, you know, because I, I don't know if it's, it's a, a pure renewable grid is still the answer, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think that we will obviously always need, right, battery, some amount of synchronous generation to manage this, this issue. But I also think, for example, coordination among um, coordination uh, between geographies is also a really powerful tool that we haven't necessarily always utilized for a combination of mm-hmm. geopolitical and algorithmic reasons. But um, there has been some work, for example, that has shown where you, if you have solar or wind integrated over a large geographical region, sort of the amount of variance you actually get that is unexpected on small timescales is, is less because you sort of have different parts of, of you know, renewables in different parts of the grid actually yeah. balancing each other out to an extent. So, um, and of course, the wider and wider an area you can do this over, the better. But of course, that means, you know, having good relationships with your neighbors <laughs> and, and setting up energy trade, et cetera. And it, that's, a, that's a political and a geopolitical problem. So um, I think that, we can get to grids with high proportions of renewables, but this is of course not just a technology problem. It's a problem that is also social and political in many ways. You're absolutely right. I think there was an article today that came on the BBC talking about how power sustainability and and transition will become a highly politicized topic and and a source of friction between countries. And I can see it happening, right? we already have a lot of political agendas around it. You know, Japan, for example, trying to turn off nuclear because of obviously Fukushima. And then whenever I go to Japan and tell them, you know what, what is best for the environment? Nuclear, <laughs> because it's the only way to not damage the rest. And then you can always, once Elon Musk has his rockets, we can always send the, the, the radioactive waste to the moon, right? But obviously we, we, we talk about topics that are very difficult because of, of the way that the political agendas have set. I'd like to talk a little bit about your climate change AI, uh, the, the group that you're now leading. Tell us a little bit of how it started, uh, that initiative and that, that NGO. Yeah, so climate change AI, um, our organization formally started about two and a half years ago. Um, but before that, it started with this, this notion of three kinds of people or three kinds of groups of people coming together um, to realizing that sort of more work and exploration needed to be done in climate change and machine learning. So one group um, represented by um, one of my co-founders, David Rolnick, um, he was somebody coming um, more so from the pure machine learning and math side. And he and many others were wondering, well, I'm somebody who, who works on machine learning. 
how can I apply my skills to, to tackle climate change, given that climate change is, of course, such a such a pressing issue these days. Um, there was then another group sort of starting from the climate and climate policy side, sort of represented by um, one of my co-founders, Lynn Koch, who um, we're starting to see large amounts of data start to become available, things like satellite imagery, and realizing that analyzing the satellite imagery at scale could provide decision-relevant insights that could actually be very useful for, for example, climate policy. And then uh, there is a sort of group of people uh, like myself who had already started to work at this intersection of maybe machine learning and a, and a technical area very relevant to, to climate change, like the electric power sector, but maybe felt a little bit isolated in our efforts, maybe that there were not that many people fundamentally um, thinking about this intersection. So coming together, we realized that there needed to be both a, um, a description of just how do machine learning and climate change fit together to both highlight the existing work that had already been going on, but also serve as a map and a rallying point for future work. So. Um, Two and a half years ago, we released a paper called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, as you mentioned earlier on, Luis, about, and, and this was a sort of um, a 60 Massive page. paper, yeah, well, 241 <laughs> yeah. sites or something, right? 271 <laughs> you're, you're cited by. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, it's basically a 60-page paper that goes through different sectors that are relevant to both reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, and, and um, adapting to, to climate change, and also looks at things like policy and, and economics and, and things that are really necessary to enable climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies. And for each of those tries to go through and say, you know, where are the places where machine learning can potentially either contribute or alleviate some kind of bottleneck. But going further than that, this paper was the first step, right? Again, there needed to be some just something to say, this is what we can do. But then the question of how we do it, right? There's so many funding bottlenecks. It's many of these problems are fundamentally collaborative and multidisciplinary. You need to bring together people who know machine learning and know a particular climate relevant sector and who know policy and who know business and all of these kinds of things. So we wanted to sort of make sure that we were also providing a platform for people from these different spheres to come together, build teams, ideate on things and actually move forward on, on solving some of these problems. And this is what um, prompted us to um, found Climate Change AI. So for the last few years, we've been running a combination of conferences, educational events, funding programs, and also working um, within policy to try to inform policymakers as to, you know, what kinds of things they do they need to, to look for or do in order to facilitate the responsible use of AI to, for, for climate action. But also more broadly, as I've talked about earlier, AI is a, you know, a multi-purpose tool. It can also be used in ways across society that counteract climate change goals. So how do you also as a policymaker account for this and so sort of holistically think of AI um, in terms of how you best align it with climate change. Um, and as part of this, we are you know, always thinking about ways of, we have so many machine learning people who are really, really excited to apply their skills to climate change, but who don't always find a pathway to do this impactfully. And on the other side, we have you know, a lot of people in sectors like the power sector who have started to realize right, that AI machine learning can be a really um, powerful tool, but I've heard in many cases, you know, often don't always have the, the capacity, skills, knowledge, et cetera, to implement it. 
So we're very excited to, to continue to work on sort of bringing these, these groups together. Um, and to that end, if anybody you're listening, right, we're always very excited to explore, you know, creative funding programs or, or um, placement programs where, you know, creating placement programs with an entity where maybe some, we get folks from the machine learning community to work at a power sector entity for a year and, and sort of coordinate that way. We're always very excited to, to explore options like this with, with players in, for example, the power sector to sort of make sure in some sense that everybody has sort of the knowledge and capacity they need in order to move forward on, on some very important problems here. Yeah, I, I think we wish, let's make a call out together because it, it, I don't know if you read this paper from Dr. Galina Linova from Oxford that talked about, she used machine learning to demonstrate why policymakers are not, and, and why power transition is slowed down by the incumbents and policies instead of facilitated, right? And I, I was very curious, uh, actually, I'm planning to have a, a podcast with her, uh, very curious about the portion that belonged to Asia. And uh, what I realized, and I realized this in the ground now too, is that change has been driven by the IPPs, by the independent power producers, the, the lateral thinking, the non-incumbents, non-government-owned you know, uh, EPCOs or energy corporations that, that want to drive the change. And you have wonderful companies out there like Big Rim in Thailand who installs, I think they're close to one gigawatt worth of solar. Uh, and their CEO is really interesting because he talks about love and peace as part of the of the key aspects, right? But it, it is those companies that makes us in Asia. It gives me a lot of hope because they are leading the way uh, of how we should be doing power. So maybe what we can do now is let's make an appeal to the fact that these IPPs need to get involved more. They could get involved in in, in climate change AI, for example, educate their people about why machine learning matters, right? They want to do things differently. This can only accelerate their ideas, their 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 innovations, right? And and maybe those IPPs are trying to figure out new ways to do all problems, distributed power, as you know, hybrid systems, even bringing you know uh, batteries. They could benefit from from reaching out to you, your organization and and facilitating and spread out of the message. I think how would they go about doing that? What, what is it that, what kind of participation do you have in North America? Like, I know you, you collaborate today with Duke Energy. What, what kind of collaborations do you, do you have today that people and IPPs can consider here in Asia? Yeah, it's a great question. And one thing I'll also note is that our, our network is, it, you know, not just in the US, it sort of spans the world. For example, um, at our um, our, our conference events where we invite submissions of work from researchers and, and startups, et cetera, that are, that are working in this area. We've gotten submissions from um, all six inhabited continents and you know, over 50 countries. So this is really a very global and dynamic network that, that hopefully is very exciting for folks to sort of get um, involved in. Um, in terms of formal partnerships, um, we are you know, always very excited to explore sort of doing things together, right? So. We've done things as, as light as, you know, organizing a joint webinar that dives into the particular issues that are being faced by a particular um, group or, or sector, all the way to we're starting to explore with different entities, things like setting up, again, like placement programs or something like this to say, okay, can we actually create a mechanism to bring people into your organization for, um, you know, a year, or can we actually create a mechanism for, for if, if what you need is just sort of a tutorial on how machine learning works, etc. We both have these tutorials on our website and would be excited to explore how we can sort of, you know, 
think about this capacity building issue more in depth. So we're very sort of excited to work um, closely with, with entities in this sector and sort of the best way to, um, if, you, if you would like to just sort of, you know, attend workshops and events and understand what is going on in this space and meet others who are working in this space, um, I'd encourage you to visit our website, which is um, climatechange.ai. And you can see more about those events there. We also have a newsletter where you can hear about those and just join in, join a webinar, join a workshop, meet other people who are doing this. And if you'd like to explore something more in depth, again, for example, exploring how do we create a placement program within your particular IPP, then please feel free to just reach out via email and we can discuss further. That's great. Let's let I'll 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 make sure to push that message around because there's uh, quite a few uh, privately owned forward thinking uh, IPPs and, and power operators in different parts of Asia that that I think would benefit a lot from building a network. And, and just like we do in the academic world, you know, I think utilities need to more and more build a network to figure out some of these very complex problems. Um, Absolutely. And one more thing I'll bring up. So climate sure. change AI uh, for the last two and a half years has been run almost entirely by, by volunteers. But um, in order to, of course, scale up and, and globalize some of our activities, we are you know, trying to build more concerted capacity within climate change AI. We also run um, uh, um, funding programs that we recently ran an innovation grants program. And while the amount of funding for that grant was, was great, we got uh, very grateful to get $2 million, $2 million in funding for that from um, Schmidt Futures and the Quadrature Climate Foundation. That means we'll only be able to fund a tiny, tiny fraction of the proposals that we actually got. So there's really a need to sort of just inject more, um, more, more funding and more capacity into this space. So if you, you know, are somebody who, you know, either right, would be, for example, interested in funding climate change AI, but more broadly, if you feel that you have capacity within your organization to, for example, hey, we're a grant giving entity, we give out lots of grants, is there a way that we can actually incorporate climate change AI principles into our grants programs so we can scale the impact of these programs more broadly? Again, something we'd be really interested in talk talking about. Actually, you know what, let's also make a call out to the to the funds in Asia, which there's some very dynamic ones. You got Schlumberg here doing startups. You got Engie's doing startups in Singapore. You got the Vision Fund and SoftBank, you know, collaborating with Jera as well. So this is a great way for some of these funds, dynamic funds looking for opportunities to be exposed to optionality. You know, whoever helps solve some key complex issues of sustainability will define the way that we will operate power in the next 20 years. So this research matters and, and, and the outcomes from it, funding the outcomes of this, uh, go beyond just the economic value they create. So let's do that. And then to, to wrap up the conversation, I think that I want to appeal to a little part of you too, which is you, you are obviously from an Indian heritage. I know you, you speak Tagalog. Uh, it will be very interesting to know for our listeners, for our young listeners out there, that there is a way to get involved in sciences. There is a way to, to do things that matter early in your life. I mean, you got involved when you were in, 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 in uh, high school, right? That's, that's, uh, that's something I want our, our listeners to listen to because it's never too early to do something about climate change. It's never too early to do something about our planet. So maybe, is there a message you could give to the young Indian girls out there that are feeling that perhaps they don't have some relevant plan because we do have a lot of talent in Asia that sometimes they just lack uh, an inspiration. So what would you, what would you say to them? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess one thing I'd say is, you know, be bold. I think a lot of the kinds of things, not just the kinds of solutions we need, but the way we need to approach a lot of these problems is different than the way we've approached them in the past, right? The the, the reason we have climate change is because we did things a certain way in the past and we will need radically new ways of thinking and doing to to, to really um, address the climate change issue. So I'd say be bold, be creative, be you know, don't be afraid to do things that are a little bit non-traditional or off the beaten path, because these are exactly the kinds of things that we'll need in order to address the, the climate change issue. Another thing I'll say is, um, I know that especially for a lot of young people, they feel that, okay, I, I need to have mapped out my 30-year my plan in life in order to make an impact on this problem. But I think the way that things act actually happen are a lot more, you know, messy and unplanned. I think you find something that sparks your interest, for example, this one week class at the beginning of high school, right? Very random in some sense, very small thing that really sparked a lifelong interest. So be open-minded, be curious, be sort of receptive to these kinds of experiences. And when those experiences drive you to say, oh, maybe I should think about this problem differently, or, 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 or I'm interested in going down this path, listen to yourself here. Don't worry about, you know, you know, again, having this really, you know, nicely laid out 20 year plan. I think a lot of these things happen much more spontaneously than that. That's a, that's a great message. And, and I want to supplement that with saying, if you are a young person sitting somewhere in Indonesia in your little bike, wanting to, having to work for Gojek to make an ends meet, if you have internet, you have, you're listening to this podcast, get involved. You can reach out, get involved as a volunteer climate change AI. What we have in Asia is a lot of people, a lot of people willing to want to do things. Get involved because these kinds of things will definitely do matter, right? And reaching out to a network of people that can understand and, and support you will make a great difference. Priya, Absolutely. I, I and, um, thank you for if your I can time. say so one more thing. Yes, please um, go ahead. To, to everybody also, right? Your perspective matters, right? I think it's very easy to think, oh, I am, you know, you know, representing my, you know, one very small pocket of the world or my village, like your perspective matters. We definitely need a huge diversity of, of ways of thinking of, of perspectives in order to address this challenge. So if you're thinking, you know, am I good enough or important enough to, to work on this problem? The answer is yes, please do. <laughs> Absolutely. Priya, it's been a pleasure. I just want to finish with a quote of Oris Mann. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And to be fair, that, that when I first time I heard that quote about five years ago, it really inspired me to, to be decisive in being in power matters, matters to, matters to a lot of people. It'll matter by long after your death. So thank you very much for your work. Thank you for your time. And hopefully we'll get you over in the podcast once more. Thanks, Luis. A lot of fun. All right. Thank you, Priya. Bye.